I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. The government to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. This night we'll share a lover on that dark radio. How the soul may be so lonely. Hands pressed cold against the phone. See all the stars descending right I am a happiness researcher who cries when I laugh too hard. I'm an introverted mother of three who thrives in the midst of the pure chaos of a bouncy house birthday party with kids high on cake. I'm an impressionistic artist who loves data and spreadsheets. I'm a spontaneous individual who can also be very type A. My family jokes about how I used to save exactly 3% of my weekly $1 allowance to donate to save the whales. I'm a technophile and a nature lover, a romantic and a pragmatist. Some of my happiest moments with my three beautiful daughters are ones I can look back at over and over because I had the brilliant presence of mind to capture them on my phone. One oh six point six FM with Bill.
words are the raw material of a message, but also there's no point speaking unless you can improve on silence. Detail is like salt. You can always add more. Don't over-salt. Once in, you can't take it out. Consider what your audience wants to know, but also, and every bit is important, what they don't want to know. Because they've got no time, no interest, they're preoccupied with 10,000 other things, and they'd gladly pay you a boatload of money if you simply didn't tell them. But how focused are you? You seem to have 29 ideas at once, and I feel like I'm hearing them all right this minute.
While it's tempting to think nostalgically about life before the smartphone, the truth is that teens still ignored their parents and got into trouble back then. Kids still watched too much television and did not eat enough vegetables. Business leaders still felt as if they needed more than 24 hours in a day. Parents still struggled to balance work and life. We've had these problems for a long time, but the ways that we address these challenges today are different. We have too many tools, now many of them digital, so many that it's nearly impossible to decipher which ones to use effectively. They range from expensive to homemade, shiny to boring, sleek to cumbersome. And those characteristics don't define their utility.
college president George Brushhaber spoke of a missing generation of younger leaders ready to take the places of the senior post-World War II group of evangelical pioneers. My own travels and observations have led me to believe this is a worldwide phenomenon. Yet I am encouraged to believe there is a new group of younger men and women, roughly 40 and under, emerging into leadership around the world. In response to both the lack of and the new wave of leaders, there is an urgent need for the cultivation of leadership. I believe we can make either of two opposite mistakes in viewing leadership emergence. One is to attach a mystique to leadership that says in effect, leaders are born, there is nothing we can do about it. The opposite is to say, leaders are made. With the right techniques, we can produce them.
This has got nothing to do with onions. There is no bag, and I might not be Bill, but something's big. At 16, I left my American homeland for the continent of Africa. There, I encountered the Kenyan culture, a culture completely alien from my Western upbringing. The food, dwellings, customs, and daily routines were all new. I didn't even speak the language, and yet a magical thing happened. Instead of my feeling confused and alone, my interactions with the Kenyan people felt incredibly meaningful, much more so than what I was accustomed to in my own country. I asked myself, how is this possible? I can't even talk to them. This question led me on a global adventure to discover what makes people feel connected to one another. My travels have had one essential goal, to develop meaningful relationships without knowing the local languages. What are you doing again? You're taking over a radio station. That's not allowed, surely.
What you're telling me is that the music is about to stop and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of capitalism. Do you care to know why I'm in this chair with you all? I mean, why I earn the big bucks? Yes. I'm here for one reason and one reason alone. I'm here to guess what the music might do a week, a month, a year from now. That's it, nothing more. And standing here tonight, I'm afraid that I don't hear a thing. Just silence. that the whole art of politics is to make selfish individuals more intelligent, which I call solidarity, and which Jacques Attali calls self-interested altruism. It's a question of making people understand it's in their own interest to take account of others' interests. It is in our own interest, for instance, to pay taxes. I don't at all believe in the progress of humanity, but I believe very much in the progress of society. Therefore, 
If you count on individual altruism to avoid economic crises, unemployment, poverty, then I won't follow you at all in that line of reasoning. In order to reconcile altruism and selfishness, politics were invented, which is a way to be selfish together and intelligently, rather than stupidly against each other. Midlife are a little like a smoke detector. You need them in theory, but they can be a nuisance to keep up, especially if you're juggling children, aging parents, and a career. So you let them run out of juice. You don't really miss them until the house begins to burn and you wish you had a few firemen nearby. For growing legions of baby boomers, friends serve as lifelines, surrogate families, a new kind of shelter in the storm. Historic numbers of middle-aged people live alone, single or divorced, scattered across the country, disconnected from their families of origin. Many live a solitary existence by day as well. Now science is showing that friends are the surest defense against one of the most ruthless killers, isolation. 
every evolutionary instinct cries out for trusted companions. And the more the merrier, because the more friends you have, the healthier, happier, and more mentally acute you will be, now and in your later years.
loving advocate now listening in Sibloy. You're listening to my big bag of onions. A lot of the initial research on dognition has focused on communicative abilities. We have seen that dogs are geniuses in their ability to read our gestures. Their skills are similar to what we observe in infants. The mental flexibility of dogs has led other researchers and me to suggest that dogs have a basic appreciation of our communicative intentions. They often use our behavior to infer what we want, and what we want is usually to help them. However, communication is not just visual and does not just involve receiving and interpreting information. Communication can also be vocal and require producing meaningful signals. Do dogs understand words in the same way we do? Do their vocalizations actually mean anything? And do they communicate differently depending on their audience? It's a Bill's big bag of onions. I'm on the dark side of the hollow hill. The sun comes up, babe, but it's hard to get my feet. Your blue serape, it fits my mood. I'm through the bad. I'm through with food Somebody's calling Trying to track me down And if I don't answer I'd hang around I slide past lovers Lost in the dark September the year you believed in me nineteen hundred and ninety-nine when I found the angels a drinking wine. Silver dagger 
there is a statistically significant relationship between the number of laws and regulations that a given country has got and the level of corruption. For instance, Italy has got 40,000 laws on the books. India, I was just reading, has got almost as many. Compare this to France or Germany, where they've got only 7,000 or 6,000. So this is my idea. My idea is to put a cap on the number of laws that a government can pass every year. My magic number is 100, and a total of no more than 10,000 laws on the books. Why is this a good idea? Well, the more laws and regulations there are, the higher the level of law-breaking, hence the higher the level of opportunities for corruption. Also, if one is bound to break the law, she is more likely to excuse the breaking of laws done by others, which is uh, not a good thing, because sometimes politicians break the laws and real criminals break the law.
What's that you say? Your father's spirit still lives in this place. Well, I will silence you. My first discovery in graduate school was that I was almost normal, 
It was the fall of 1999 when I began my graduate studies in psychology at the University of Minnesota. New students were given the option to go through a rigorous psychological assessment that would give us feedback about our personality characteristics, intellectual abilities, and vocational interests. I figured the assessment would be a fun exercise in self-exploration. Two weeks later, I found a yellow envelope in my mailbox with confidential reports scribbled across the seal. My personality and pathology scores never crossed into a clearly diagnosable range, but my scores were uneven. For example, my scores on personality traits such as kindness and curiosity were significantly higher than the average person's, but my scores on patience and orderliness were much lower than average. I wondered for a second what it was like for other people to make sense of someone who was kindly impatient or who possessed a disorderly sense of curiosity.
the sorrow of the night In the violence of a summer's dream In the chill of a wintry light In the bitter dance of loneliness Fading into space In the broken mirror of innocence Circumstances in which we perceive something, its context, have an enormous effect on how we react to it. Your actions would be different if, a few feet away from you, you saw a poisonous snake poised to strike in a glass cage as opposed to skittering towards you on a table. We constantly take in all sorts of cues from the environment and also from our own thoughts and feelings. This, in fact, is why the placebo effect can be so powerful. Our conscious thoughts, which are formed in the prefrontal cortex, can spur physical changes throughout the body. The placebo effect is so powerful that once it's been in place for just a few days, the effect persists, even after people are told that they aren't getting the real drug. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words and sound. Be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cone Radio. Thank you very much.